I'm Eric Peterson, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. When all is said and done on the show, what is it that you hope viewers take away from Kevin Can Fuck Himself? I mean, many things. But, you know, one of the things is I hope that the next time they watch a useless multicam and they laugh at the jokes, they just think for half a beat about what they're laughing at. You know, if it's just something that will make them pause and look at some stuff in a different way, I think that would be awesome. And I just hope they walk away with an understanding that women are really fucking resilient. Welcome to Kevin Can Podcast Himself, your dedicated after-show podcast for the AMC series, Kevin Can Fuck Himself. This is Mike. Uh, those listeners may know from our recent interview with Eric Peterson, this is part of our continuing coverage of the series finale of Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Uh, so this is not our uh, Caroline and my series finale recap episode. This is another interview episode that we're uh, so excited to bring you. Uh, we just released our interview with Eric Peterson discussing the series finale a couple of days ago. Today, we're very excited to bring you our interview with Anna DeCosa. Anna, for those that listen, will know, uh, directed 12 of the 16 episodes of Kevin Can Fuck Himself. We've been talking about getting her on the show, I feel like, literally for two seasons. She took over, basically, episode three and directed every single episode except for the first two of, se of season one and the final two of season two. So she directed literally the entire middle of the series. So we were so interested as we've gone through the podcast Caroline and I talk about her constantly just what her voice is and what her thoughts are about the show so it was a real bucket list item for us to get Anna on on the podcast so we could talk to her and, and pick her brain Caroline will not be on this interview she actually had a family emergency right before we were about to start recording but we you know the show goes on so we were very excited to bring you our interview with Anna DeCozo. we get into her career how she switched from being a news journalist into into directing scripted television we talk about the challenges of every episode directing a multicam section and a single cam section and the challenges of multicam which she had never done before we talk about some of the uh, effects and uh, the catharsis of the finale and and we we get into it, it it's, it's a great interview Anna was so generous with her time uh, I went over a little bit uh, from what I told her the interview time would be uh, so you know she was very generous with her time and we thank her a lot for coming on and uh, we hope you guys enjoy the interview so stick around now for our interview with Kevin Can Fuck Himself series director, Anna DeCosa. Joining us tonight on Kevin Can Podcast Himself, we're so excited to finally have the director extraordinaire and co-executive producer of Kevin Can Fuck Himself, Anna DeCosa. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good. I should actually clarify, is DeCosa the correct pronunciation of your last name? It is. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been all sorts of things. People love, I mean, I get all sorts of spellings, but you, you, you hit it. It's correct. I have a name where people say Caputo all the time, and it's Caputo, so I'm, I'm very sensitive. <laughs> 
sensitive <laughs> pronouncing last people's names. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, it's it, it looks easy, but there's all sorts of pronunciations. I like telling people a story. I'm a big fan of Christian Borrell. He's a, a Broadway guy, and he's been on a bunch of TV shows. He was in Smash. I don't know if you ever caught Smash like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Anyway, yes. and I was interviewing him for the first time, and I, I, I realized I had never... I didn't realize until I started talking to him, I had never said his name out loud or heard his name said out loud, only his last name. And so I uh, pronounced it as Borley, Christian Borley, because that's how it's spelt. Yes. And he very sheepishly and very kindly was like, it's actually Borrell. I was like, oh, no. Well, you know, sometimes if we don't have to say it out loud, we've been pronouncing it in our brain wrong for years and years. I mean, who's going to correct you? It is awkward, though, when someone says your name wrong and you're just like, oh, am I going to correct them? Am I not going to correct them? Right. And if you don't do it the first time, that train's left the station. You can never do it again. And then you become stuck being that person. Yeah. Then you become Kelvin McLoberts. Exactly. Exactly. By choice. Uh, uh, So, Anna, we have been saying your name back in since like episode three of season one. You've been with the show for so long. And I feel like Caroline, who can't join us for today's interview and and i on every podcast episode have said to ourselves we have got to talk to anna about the show because you're this force of the show having directed 12 of the 16 episodes but we've never like we don't really get to hear from you about the show at all (laughs) so you were you were a little bit of a white whale for us to get on here and talk to you talked about your time with the show Oh, well, you know, I'm here now. I'm uh, happy to chat about it. Uh, uh, well, uh, we're going to take full advantage of that. So uh, before we get to Kevin, I'd like to take you in the Wayback Machine of your career, because I think I, I read somewhere when I was doing prep for your, for this that you had started in news and, and doing news yes. shows. What made you jump from there to script to television and why directing versus, say, writing or, or even acting? I was a journalist for a long time and I loved it. I think when I was young, I always wanted to tell stories and journalism was a way to do that. That seemed like a conceivable path for me. And it didn't even occur to me that I could make movies or do anything because I sort of grew up in Sydney, Australia at a time where there really wasn't a film industry. And it definitely wasn't anything that was in my world or in my immediate world. Whereas I used to watch news and I used to read news and I thought, well, that exists. I must be able to do it. Whereas sort of the scripted stuff seemed American and very far away. So then after I'd done news for about a decade, news changed and the internet changed news and I wanted to keep telling stories and it presented itself to transition actually into nonfiction. So I directed reality for a while. I really sort of got a lot of experience of being in the field and dealing with a lot of cameras and, you know, in news you get one go at a story. Uh, If you miss it, you miss it. In reality, you get several goes, you know. Those people are sort of, you know, they, they do things that are slightly manufactured to some degree and then in scripted you completely get to control the storytelling. So I was able to transition from reality into scripted because the production company that I worked for did both. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. And directing is visual and I've always been a visual person. So it just is what I love to do and what I'm meant to be doing. So fast forward, you you work on some high profile shows, The Three Debras, which is great, special on Netflix uh, for two seasons. How do you transition from there to becoming involved with Kevin Kim Fuck Himself? Did you know Valerie Armstrong previously? Tell us about how you became involved with the show. 
Actually, I did not know anybody on the show. Uh, it was one of those things where, in the before times, before COVID, um, <laughs> this was going to be a show that was going to have multiple directors, and I had a very small window that I was available, so I met with them to direct originally episode uh, 107, and only 107, because I was committed to a couple of other projects. And I remember uh, meeting meeting Valerie and, and meeting Craig and meeting the original pilot director. Uh, she is no longer with us. And meeting just like the group and just like really loving it. I also just loved the title. Anybody that knows me knows that I swear like a truck driver. Love it. And I use the word fuck in all its forms as an adjective, noun, you name it. So I got a real kick out of the title and I was really sort of captivated by the idea of doing a multi and a single in one. And when I first heard and read the pilot and and just chatted to them about the concept, it felt like such an obvious idea that I was like, how has no one done this before? This right. just seems so obvious. Then COVID hit and Kevin came back and uh, they had asked me to actually do a couple of episodes earlier in the season. And when I started, it just kind of evolved from there because we just had a great connection and I loved the story and the scripts and the actors and everything so much. It was just like a very great partnership. I love the idea you show up for one and you end up staying for 12. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Basically, well, that's what happened. <laughs> had, had you spent a lot of time in Massachusetts before? What was that like? Just the act? I mean, you, you having an Australian accent, then coming into yes. this world, uh, the it, was there some culture shock there? What did you think of filming you know, up there? I'm, a, I'm also a New Yorker. When I first moved from Sydney, I moved to New York. Me too. Uh, at like age 20. So I am well versed in East Coast <laughs> culture. Hey, what are you talking um, about? I don't know what yeah. you mean. And I lived in Pennsylvania for a little while, too, for a show. So, But I had never spent such significant time in Boston. And I also was smug thinking that because I knew New York winters really well that I was going to be fine. <laughs> but I was so fucking wrong. Yeah. I have never been that level of cold. It's just cold. It goes and to your bones, like to your really soul. Just, yeah, yeah, it like crawls up through the floor into your feet and just doesn't leave. But I do think shooting on location, shooting in Boston, shooting with that crew, which were, they were just mind-blowingly talented and lovely and awesome, uh, is what made the show, sort of gave it that palette and gave it that vibe. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, the hardest part about was winter, but it was, season one was covid you know, like right. I didn't truly get to experience Boston, whereas season two, I was able to like get out of the COVID prison a little bit and just sort of experience things. And we saw the seasons, you know, one of my favorite things is as a director, you always want to do that one episode or something in the Northeast fall. Right. Like, you know, when those episodes, when those like leaves are falling and it's just stunning and it never happens because it's just that like small window. But for episode 104 in season one, we had that. And I, I just it. remember coming to work and like streets being littered with leaves and me going, oh my God, that's going to be on camera. And we don't have to clean it up. It just looks amazing. So really the joy of being able to go to a location that is set in Worcester and, and not trying to make it pretty. Like, there will be so many times I'd be on a scout, I'm like, oh my God, look at those ugly overhead power lines. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> like it, would, it would be almost like the things that you would usually want to clean up and fix and make look pretty. It was like, no, do not touch it. Do not touch this. Do not touch that bar. It was really just about 
keeping it the way that it is. And I absolutely love that. I love that. I, you mentioned the attraction to the show, the two distinct genres in one. Uh, so take us behind the scenes a little bit. And can you talk to us a little bit about how do you prep for and how do you approach shooting a show with two distinct genres? Yeah, I had never directed multicam before. And to be perfectly honest, I was always kind of like, well, I, it never appealed to me. Like, uh, from a directing point of view, it really feels very stagnant. You know, it's like theater. You only cut to, I mean, it's only, it's shot on pads. It doesn't move much. It's like wide, wide, close up, close up, wide. You know, it felt very like not particularly challenging. Right. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> and I uh, have to say that was like one of the cool things about this show is that I, I really feel like I learned a new skill. Uh, multicam. It's hard, actually, because what you end up doing is you have to pay real close attention to pacing and sound. It's a huge part of it. You immediately can hear when something doesn't land. It's an adrenaline rush. So you, you are working on a joke and then you know when it doesn't land and you have to fix it immediately (laughs) so it's either the joke's not working the way that it's laid out is not working the way it's delivered is not working like something is not working how do we fix this problem it was also interesting for me as a director i spent a lot of my time giving my actors shit to do you know to keep them busy to keep them moving in multicam they just stand there or sit there (laughs) they might do some stuff you know eric had a lot of physical comedy annie had a lot of physical stuff but in essence, you don't really cut to them until they have a line. Right. And they're, in the background. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, and they're sitting on the couch, right? It was yes. like it was just like yes. a hand on their beer so on their knee. Yeah. Super weird. You know, for someone that's like uh, the single cam, you know, sensibility is the opposite of that, you know, because it's just that's boring. So it was really fun to sort of make those two worlds, uh, you know, make the multicams come alive and figure out the sort of physicality of that. But I loved figuring out the transitions. You know, because it's not something you could just like smack together. You had to really think about which movement or which angle or what was going to take you from what's happening in the multicam to what is happening in the single cam, you know, and that was always, always very fun. We noticed in season two, there there were a lot more quicker cuts between the two uh, worlds, the way it was edited together. Was that you guys and, and you and the director's chair and then everyone else around you upping your game on making the cuts go faster? You know, there's a lot of uh, there were a couple of times where the kitchen door would swing and you would alternate back and forth on like the kitchen door swinging between the living room yes. and the kitchen. Yeah. Was, was that you just flexing and, and being more comfortable with the two worlds kind of coming together at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point it was, uh, by the time we got to season two, it was almost like we wanted to challenge ourselves, like, how else can we make this transition? You know, what else can we do? Or how do we, because you know what it works and you know what it won't work. So yeah, you know, it was a little bit of trying to figure out if we can bring a little bit of change to some of the transitions. Now, for people that don't know, and and I only learned this from when we were talking to Eric Peterson, the show would shoot the multicam on certain days and the single cam on certain days. Is is that right? Yes, because the multicam is its own crew and its own setup. Some of our single cam camera crew 
were on the multicam days, but we had to bring in additional multicam operators and a team who do this all the time because it is a different approach. You know, the cameras are different. Those giant pads that move on the floor, you know, lighting is different. Everything is different. So, uh, but the main difference is that we take out a wall. Like there's no fourth wall in a multicam. So the physicality of actually removing that wall is what turns it into a multicam stage. And some of the walls come out slightly to the side. So it just becomes a bigger stage. And always without fail, it's different when you put up that wall and you walk into that living room and it's a closed set. It immediately feels like single camera. There is magic that happens when that once that wall gets removed, both from a multicam angle and from a single cam angle. So you couldn't, the physicality wouldn't work on the same day. And also we have an audience for a multicam. So right. all of that requires sort of coordination and, and different things. And, and a lot of the times, Eric or Annie got messy. They got shit thrown at them. They had to be in a hot tub. Like they had to, do you know what I mean? Like there was right. just actual things that require resets and require for that to be contained within the multicam world. For your first time doing the multicam and getting used to that, did the audience being there, were, were they a cue for you on trying to determine if something was working or not based on their reactions? Oh, yeah, we use them all the time. I mean, if they're not laughing at a thing, you're like, that's not funny. Like, right. how do we make them laugh at a thing? And then sometimes they would laugh at something and I was like, oh, I didn't think that would land. But okay, it landed. And especially it was awesome to for the audience to be the gauge of when a point was hitting or it went too far. Like, for example, you know, when Annie sort of like walks out of the diner, leaving uh, Eric just kind of standing there when she loses it, the audience was quiet. They were like, wait, how do we react to this? Right. And that's the point. Sometimes you want them to not know how to react because that's the whole point of having a multicam within this world is that we're conditioned to laugh to things that we're not even thinking about while we're laughing. Hence the problem. Um, so it was really interesting to use the audience as a tool to sort of see what's working and what's not working. I think everyone on the show seems to have some kind of influence that they look to for influencing their either their character or the way they were sh- shooting the multicam and the single cam. Growing up in Australia, I'm not sure how much American television you watch, but I'm curious if, if you were drawing on any influences as you were approaching the two different genres. Oh, yeah, we shit time. Uh, the thing about Australian comedy, it's, it's a mixture of uh, British comedy and American comedy. That's why we're weird, because we grew up with like a mixture. So I would say most Australians like their comedy fairly dark or a little bit off kilter. Uh, but we grew up on American comedy. You know, I grew up on Friends and Seinfeld and Golden Girls. You know, those are the multicams. But like, I didn't know that that was called a multicam when I was right. growing up. That was just comedy, you know? Right. Uh, definitely. We have all been conditioned to understand how the format works and how the jokes work and how the jokes are paced, you know, and what the expectations are. So all of us on the show had a lot of comedy influences in terms of what we watched when we were younger uh, and the multicam. I I mean, I watched Frasier. I know Valerie watched Frasier a lot. I did watch Frasier, but like my favorites were like Seinfeld and Golden Girls and 
than, than I guess like the rest of the world friends. I was a big friends guy, and Caroline, I'm, I could speak for her behalf. I mean, still watches Golden Girls every night. Yeah, so. it's my favorite. Favorite. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned lighting before and lighting the scenes being differently. I, I think fans noticed, or at least I think I think we noticed that in this new season, the lighting seemed to be moving towards each other. That the the sitcom world seemed a little bit darker maybe or that the single cam seemed a little bit lighter or that they, the worlds were kind of moving together is that deliberate or are we just seeing what we want to see and no no it is deliberate i mean when you think about it as the episodes unfold the worlds are just combining more and more do you right. know what I mean? The yeah. line is becoming blurred. So that was our take. We were yes, we were right exactly. about okay, once, you know, once Alex crossed over, you know, and right. once all that stuff started happening, it's like now they're not so separate anymore. You know, they right. are obviously, but it, it, it is the line. The line is moving. You know, and there was that conscious decision to the multicam is basically losing its shine. Because you're starting to see more and more of the truth, you I know? It. I love that. I love that. And now, uh, now that the show is said and done and you've put so many hours into it, when you sit back and you think about it, is there a multicam scene that stands out to you that you wish you could have seen played out in the drama or in the single cam world? I mean, to be honest, any Eric scene, which is many of them, because it would be so incredible to have actually seen him in that. Like, you know what the truth is. Do you know what I mean? Without the lights, without the without the laughter, it just would have been incredibly dark. But, you know, there's nothing sort of really specific. But I love the scenes. Uh, There's so many scenes, you know, there's a scene where, like, he's trying to get his dad hooked up with Diane and she's like eating ribs and (laughs) they're like standing around picking her apart i mean can you imagine that scene in a single cam it was heartbreaking in a multi-cam yeah but like for them to sort of stand around and talk about her in front of her in such disparaging ways is like we're laughing at it but it's just dreadful you know and then you cut to her in single cam sitting in that backyard in the dark The effect of that multicam can be seen in her single cam world. And it's just horrible. One of the things we've been preaching to our listeners is imagine everything you see in the multicam world. Imagine it as the single cam because it becomes really sinister. Even the most benign things seem to become much more sinister, especially if you remove that that laugh track. Removing that laugh track makes such a big difference in how it all hits, I think. Yeah, so. absolutely. No doubt about it. Uh, this is a more of a general what does a director do question. But for those that don't know, can you talk to the listeners about the impact on the narrative that a director has? over an episode and over the course of the season because you ended up having an effect on the show or for 12 of the 16 episodes the cool thing about being a director is like you get handed this amazing script and you get to like put a layer of icing on top you really get to look at a scene and go okay how do i make this work visually but also how do i add the next layer on top of this like how do we add extra comedy how do we add those moments of small detail and magic you know it's the stuff that's not necessarily in the script it's the look it's the moments it's like figuring out how to elevate and heighten the emotion you know for me this entire series works because it is emotionally grounded and i approach every scene and every script from that place 
You can buy the most insane thing on the planet from any character if they feel it, if it's real to them and if it's their truth. And I think for me, it's sort of visually trying to make that a reality for each character, whether they're a good character or a bad character to them, they're emotionally truthful. And I'm always, always attracted to that. I don't know if I'm actually answering your question, but uh, <laughs> it is for me, it's, it's making sure that there's a uniform feel throughout the episodes, that there's a uniform sort of path for characters, you know, that feels like it's makes sense with the story and the world that they're in. Right. Um, and it's, also figuring out just visually like what is the language of the scene, the the shots you know what pace are we moving at it just becomes like a tonal thing that gets ingrained once you understand the show like so that immediately you know if something is off if that makes any sense no no it does it does i mean i think i think i think the feeling comes down to uh, what you're saying is maybe ownership uh, over the thing that you have more ownership over the product and its influence because you're there for so long now you've done shows i know you've worked on shows where you were only a uh, director maybe for an episode or two do you change your approach if you're just kind of dropping into the visitor's chair versus having that week in and week out? Yeah, there is a difference. I prefer to be on a project from beginning to the end. You do get attached and it is your baby like it is everybody else's baby, but you get to help raise the baby. You know, right. and I like to do that. And you can do that when you're on multiple episodes. I have definitely gone and been a visiting director on a couple of shows and you're visiting somebody's house and right. you want to respect that. And you've got to figure out how they've done it. But I've been lucky enough that every show that I've gone on, the showrunner or the creator has said to me, look, this is how we do it, but feel free to put your stamp on it. You know, like we're not going to limit you in whichever way you want to do, which I really love because then it really sort of gives you the freedom to figure out, okay, I'd love to do this in a one-er. I love a one-er. Oh my God. A good effective one-er is like my favorite. I just love watching him and other things, you know, you can tell so much story from a single shot. And those, those are the favorite challenges, I think, from a directing point of view, but building the house of a show is, is super exciting to me. And I try to sort of be in those situations more often than not. But every time I have visited for an episode here or there, uh, I've also enjoyed it because you get to come and play and uh, contribute in a small way to the big picture. Now, does being a co-executive producer of the show give you more impact on the overall narrative of the show? Does that allow you to not necessarily maybe go into the writer's room, but have talked to Craig and talked to Valerie about, I, I feel like we should be doing this or that? with the show or is that more of a title and director is what you're doing and, and that's how you're expressing your voice and vision valerie and craig were amazing because whether i had the title or not they would have always been open to any kind of conversation because they were just collaborative and and very open to the idea if there is a better idea let's hear it and i love that but what the producer title allows is you know most directors just hand over their cut and that's the end of that Right. But as a producer, you stay on for the producer cuts and you stay on to the end, you know? So that's huge. There, that is huge. And also it's nice to see the way the cut is going to evolve. If there's something that you feel really, really strongly about, you can 
basically present the case and sometimes they're like oh yeah we didn't even think about it that way or or, or like no because it's not making xyz point you know uh but it is very helpful i always give valerie a hard time about it she'll roll her eyes if she hears this but there was this one shot that i really really liked just for visual sakes that was like cut out of an episode and i always bring it up just to annoy her i'm like you remember that one shot that i really loved but you cut it and you broke my heart and she's like oh my god Anna, please don't bring that shot up again. <laughs> oh my God. I, I really want to ask what the shot is. But it wasn't even a big shot. It was just this beautiful turnaround. There was a lake in the background. It was just gorgeous. It was in, it was in one of those fall days. And I was just like, I can't believe you cut that shot out. And she was like, well, we didn't. Anyway, it's, it's like an inside joke now. That's not even about the shot anymore. But it really makes me laugh. I speak on behalf of all the fans, I think, when I say we were super bummed to hear before season two even came out that the show was going to be ending with season two. We spoke to Valerie at the start of the season. She mentioned having to rewrite the end of the story a bit the last few episodes when it was announced that season two would be the end. I've been meaning to ask you, how did it affect your approach to the season as a whole? Because you didn't direct episodes seven and eight, but you did one, two, three, four, five, and six. Did it affect your approach on five and six, especially the back half of the of the season as it was kind of ramping to an end you do not very often get a chance to know when you're going to end right there are so many shows that find out and then they're like well we didn't get to finish our story as much as it sucked we got to finish the story and we knew in advance that we could sort of basically finish on our terms i've experienced this once before because it happened to me on special so we knew we were going to be done on season two at the beginning of season two. So I sort of went through all that, but it was kind of the same thing where you're like, okay, we can take ownership of how this story is going to end. And you kind of have freedom because what are they going to do? Cancel you? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, at that point, right. you can do whatever you want creatively, you know, which is really exciting. And I did do the first six. And even though I did not direct seven and eight, I was on set for seven and eight. And I was there till the very end. And it just because I didn't direct them, I was still incredibly attached to how it unfolded. And I did, we did, we thought about all of it. It, it, what it meant was much more detailed discussions about scenes and about how they're going to look and what we want them to portray than maybe we would have otherwise. Well, uh, the table is set, yeah. right? I mean, the table is yes. so set in five and six for how seven and eight play out. If if not for those episodes, there it would have been disjointed, right? It wouldn't have made sense. So, oh, absolutely. So knowing that the full picture is in place, and you're sort of executing it, and just really having the time to sort of go, okay, is this saying what we wanted to say? You know, and how how is this looking and feeling? So while it's a bummer that we don't get to play for another season it was nice to be able to just put a bow on it in the way that we wanted to having been on set and staying with the story to the end of the filming was it cathartic for you to watch the house burn and know kevin was inside of it Yes. And I think I sort of like, because we knew that that was going to happen for a while, like I had, I went through stages of it, you know, because sometimes right. you'd be out there at three o'clock in the morning, freezing your ass off and you'd be like, great, this house is going to burn and Ken's going to be <laughs> in it. And other times you're like, oh yeah. Like, especially when we shot the interior, you know, the last fight scene, you oh, know, yeah. Yeah. that's when it was like, oh yeah, burn motherfucker. Right. Uh, but it's, to me, it was very satisfying that he did it to himself, you know? he's been doing things to everybody else for so long finally he did something useful 
to himself, which sounds harsh. But yeah, I was not upset that the house burned. When all is said and done on the show, what is it that you hope viewers take away from Kevin Can Fuck Himself? I mean, many things. But, you know, one of the things is I hope that the next time they watch a useless multicam and they laugh at the jokes, they just think for half a beat about what they're laughing at. You know, if it's just something that will make them pause and look at some stuff in a different way, I think that would be awesome. And I just hope they walk away with an understanding that women are really fucking resilient. (laughs) And this, this show is about female friendship. And at the end of the day, I think there's nothing better and stronger. And I think the show showed that. That's a perfect segue into my next question, because I, I know as the show is coming to a close, there are people that are really shipping hard the Allison and Patty, what some fans call Pattison. In your headcanon, we, we know how the final shot of the show is. I'm curious in yeah. your headcanon, do these two get together down the road? It seems that they're at different parts of their journey, maybe romantically or sexually and orientation wise and their understanding. But I'm curious in your headcanon, do you do you think they get together or is it just a a platonic deep friendship well i love how we're conditioned to want everybody to be together i agree like whether they're male female male male it's just like it's if we really really want a happy ending and i think that's fascinating you know because that is just not the way that my brain approaches stuff you know i think the happy ever after is that these women have each other in whatever capacity and they are at very different points and they need different things i can't predict where they would be two three five ten years from now but at that point on on those steps they're different women with different needs at different points in their life who choose to be there for each other to see each other through those things so I don't think about them beyond that, if that makes sense. Uh, no, it does. I mean, I think Diane, the you know Jamie Dembo's character, has a line in episode six or seven. I think it's in seven, uh, where she says, "I just don't want to be alone." And maybe you know, I, I don't know if I'm in love, but I know I don't want to be alone. And maybe yeah. there's not a difference. And I think that's an important thing that a lot of people yes. don't have in their life is that feeling, you know, yes. companionship. No, so. I mean that's I loved. I mean, oh my god, the Alex jamie relationship i loved that storyline so much it made me so happy that there were these two very lost souls that for a moment found each other and one of them sort of realizing her boundaries and understanding that she's not going to replace one man with another one that needs to be fixed you know and a guy who realizes that like he can't have another woman to run to to fix things and he's got to fix like it's just like that realization on both of their parts that they have to make changes in order to be different humans is amazing and they just had great chemistry they really they had did such good chemistry i loved shooting the scenes with them i loved shooting the diners like the scene behind the diner where they first kiss oh mm-hmm. i had so much fun I, I, actually all the scenes <laughs> that were behind the diner was so much fun it was like a it was like yeah. a confessional in, in oh, so many it ways. Was great, and there was like visually the building was straight, but the the road was a bit crooked, and I just loved it because it just gave everything something a little bit off kilter, which is how the characters were when they were back there. 
that's a great summary of it. We love to spill the tea here, uh, and we would love you to spill the tea with us. Let us know, is there some behind-the-scenes story or some memory from the shoot that stands out with you? Is there something you're taking away from the from the show that we didn't see on screen that you would care to share with us and the listeners? Oh, my God. I can't think of things like this on the spot. I should have <laughs> thought about that before. I should have told um, you. No, I mean, look, the whole cast was constantly laughing. Ray loved to sing. Really? <laughs> so Ray would like break out in song, and I was like, Ray, please don't sing. We've got to, can we just, let's just, let's just focus. And he'd just bust out singing. It was hilarious. The multicam days were really fun because it was the whole cast. You know, that was the only time where you had pretty much most of the cast together because all the single cam scenes were various actors in small groups. You right, know, right. Uh, Mary Hollis and Annie obviously had a lot of scenes, and but the multicam scenes was like when the whole cast was together and it was really fun to always watch them laugh and just be together. That was the time that everybody was kind of together, which was lovely. I love that. Raymond Lee going off to Quantum Leap. Yeah, if, uh, yes. You, if people aren't out there watching it yet, go, go Yeah, my that. friend Martin Garrow is the showrunner on that. So he had called me and he's like, tell me about Ray. And I was like, Ray is wonderful. You're going to have a great time with him. So I'm so glad to see them uh, kicking ass. Is there anything next for you that we need to know about as we start to finish up here? Anything we should be keeping an eye out coming out of your work? Yeah, there's a few things brewing, but I can't talk about them yet. Oh, that's fine. Be... That, that gives us the excuse to have you back. We can have you back on to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I can't talk about it just yet. But yes, there's some stuff brewing. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, everyone on the show particularly seems so changed by having been on it. I'm curious what you're watching on TV these days. And, and has this experience of working on Kevin affected your ability to watch those sitcoms that we all kind of grew up with in the 80s and the 90s? Well, I don't actually watch any multicams anymore. If I watch anything, it's kind of reruns or something I've come across from the past, but I don't watch any new multicams that are being made. I like to watch drama and comedy, and I like my comedy dark. I am currently watching Bad Sisters on Apple, nice. which is a Sharon Horgan show, and I love her, and I love her stuff. I also, like everybody else, watch The Bear and was obsessed with it. I really, uh, from a directing point of view, thought it was done incredibly well to have that level of tension and shot variety within a very small confined space of that small restaurant. I thought he did an incredible job. All the directors did. I really enjoyed The Tourist, which is an HBO Max with Jamie Dornan. Okay. And uh, I loved that. It was uh, Australian BBC production that's set out in the outback that has a big thriller element through it and i I watch a lot of movies so yeah i just watched it you know everything's kind of in that vein of slightly off center i love that and i I love a black comedy so it's uh yeah i i also can't watch like this what i i deem them now the cbs sitcoms you know the that that chuck lorry vibe i I just can't get down with that anymore so yeah yeah, i need to find my my comedy and a dramedy kind of show now yes of course Thank you so much for your time, Anna. This was everything we wanted it to be. So we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us. And No worries. I'm sorry to miss Caroline. Tell her I said hi. And thanks for having me. Uh, I definitely will. If people wanted to follow you on social media, where can they find you? I am on Instagram at Anna DeCosa. And I'm also on Twitter, but I never post. I just read everybody else's shit. I love it. Also on Anna DeCosa. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anna, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I just want to give a big shout out and a big thank you to Anna for her time. Again, she was super generous. Uh, she was game to answer all my questions, even when I put her on the spot. You know, uh, for most of these interviews, uh, certainly for all the interviews actually we've done uh, relating to this show, we don't give the guests the interview questions ahead of time. So we're really putting them on the spot sometimes to come over the answers. And uh, I appreciate Anna uh, giving some really thoughtful responses, even though I uh, didn't give her any warning. Just a Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we only have one episode left. That's going to be our series finale coverage of episode 208, Allison's House, the series finale of Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Uh, but if you don't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and all of Pod Clubhouse's podcasts. And while you're there, if you could give us a five-star review, we would really appreciate it so that we don't have to burn down our own house in a drunken stupor. Uh, don't make us do that. It would make us very sad. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.